let us know. Zakalakhi for informing. Bismillah Rahman Rahim. This is a very uh, long hadith for today, so inshallah, um, we might have to change up the style a bit and try to focus on just the translation and of the story that is covered in this hadith. And as Allah Ta'ala grants tawfiq, go back over further details. Um, we have an experience in the past where we were going, uh, we had the, the hadith, the words of the hadith were brief, and we spent a lot of time going over details, but this hadith is, is quite, quite long. So it will be more appropriate to focus on the translation of it. So at least we can cover one hadith. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. وبسند المتصل منا إلى الإمام الهمام محمد بن إسماعيل البخاري اليماني الجعفي أمير المؤمنين في الحديث ما تعنى الله بعلومه وعلومه آمين يا رب العالمين قال حدثنا أبو اليمان الحكم بن نافع قال أخبرنا شعيب عن الزهري قال أخبرني عبيد الله ابن عبد الله بن عتبة بن مسعود أن عبد الله بن عباس رضي الله عنهما أخبره أن أبا سفيان بن حرب أخبره so this is the Sanad Imam Bukhari mentions between himself and Abu Sufyan ibn Harb. Most of these narrators we have already discussed in the past. And, and we have Ubaidullah bin Abdullah bin Utbah bin Mas'ud. He is one of the Fuqaha Sabah of Medina Munawwara, one of the great scholars. There are seven Imams of Fiqh in Medina, he's one of them. He narrates from his teacher Abdullah bin Abbas. We have spoken about him before as well. He is uh, the Amir, uh, Amir of the Sahaba in Tafsir, Imam of the Sahaba in the Ilm of Tafsir, a young companion from the time of Rasulullah, his first cousin, who, uh, mashallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed with a lot of knowledge of the Quran. And um, he is known as the Hebrew Ummah, the great scholar of the Ummah particularly with respect to the Qur'an. Despite being young of age when Rasulullah left this world, he worked very hard in acquiring knowledge from the senior Sahaba until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted him great knowledge. And he also received the du'as of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And those du'as he received from Rasulullah were a result of the khidmah that he did, and the service he did to Rasulullah He asked his mother if he can stay overnight at his khala's house, Maymuna radiallahu anha, when it was the turn of Rasulullah to sleep at Maymuna radiallahu anha's home. And he was aware of the calendar of Rasulullah <coughs> So he knew when it was, his, when it was the night that Rasulullah would be staying at his khala's home. So, he, went, he took that opportunity to ask his mother, can I stay at Khala's home that same night? So he could observe Rasulullah's night. And he served Rasulullah when Nabi woke up. He had his wudu water ready and his miswak ready. So Rasulullah asked that, who prepared this? And he was uh, awake in the side and he said, Ya Rasulullah, I have brought this for you. So Rasulullah made dua for him. Allahumma faqihu fi deen wa allimhu ta'wil. O Allah, grant him the understanding of the deen and grant him a special knowledge of tafsir. So that is how he became the mufassir of the ummah, despite his young age. 
there uh, many many incidents of his life that will detract us from completing the hadith for now he narrates akhbarahu anna aba sufyan ibn harb he narrates from abu sufyan ibn harb this is a very important individual with respect to this hadith because he is going to play a major role as you will see his name was sahar bin harb bin umayyah bin abdushams bin abdmanaf bin qusay bin kilab bin murra bin ka'b bin luay bin ghalib bin fahr bin malik the same nasab of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam so he was a descendant of umayyah sahar bin harb bin umayyah his grandfather was umayyah and umayyah was a son of abdushams who was a son of abdmanaf that's where his lineage goes back and joins with rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam so we may be aware that uh, the Quraysh were the leaders of the Arab and the Quraysh were the descendants of Fahar bin Malik they were known as the most prestigious lineage that they had in the Arab tribes and within the descendants of Fahar bin Malik there were two clans that had risen to prominence even in Jahiliyyah one was the family of Rasulullah which was Muhammad bin Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib bin Hashim the Banu Hashim and then the other one was the Banu Umayyah. This Umayyah bin Abdul Shams bin Abdul Manaf. And this Sahar bin Harb Abu Sufyan was from the Banu Umayyah side. So this, uh, these two families are important to know. Uh, it is, they're not some, uh, you know, uh, it's not an intricate detail which is not significant. It's very, very significant uh, because we have centuries of Muslim rule in dynasties, which are the Banu Umayyah dynasty and the Banu Abbasiyah dynasty. The Umayyad Caliphs, you may have heard in English, they call the Umayyad Caliphs and the Abbasid Caliphate. So, if you have studied history, if you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have not, you may have heard in passing these names. Either way, uh, it's hard to have not heard of Banu Umayyah and Banu Abbasiyah. So, subhanAllah, these were two clans which were from the Jahiliyyah time, uh, competing with one another for domination over the Quraysh. Um, so, in Rasulullah's own life, we see when he was a baby, the leader of the Quraysh was his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib bin Hashim. So, he was the undisputed leader. Um, he passed away when Rasulullah was eight years old. Then, after that, from amongst Abdul Muttalib's children, uh, Abu Talib was considered a leader he did not have that level of power and authority as his father did but nevertheless he was the, the leader but after he passed away then the leadership moved from the Banu Hashim to the Banu Umayyah side so who became the leader of the Quraysh it was the same Abu Sufyan so this Abu Sufyan who later becomes radiallahu ta'ala anhu became the Amir of Makkah so there are many people in the Quraysh. There are many clans in the Quraysh. This is a top clan, the Banu Umayyah. And this person we're talking about is a leader. Meaning he was not a member of the cabinet or a member of the shura. He was the leader, right? So that, I, because sometimes I get the feedback and just too much into the history, but we have to understand who is this man? This is the leader of the Quraysh and why so? So because he was from the Banu Umayyah. Because who was the leader of the, uh, of, from the Banu Hashim left? It was Rasulullah because he was Muhammad bin Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib. But Muhammad is now a leader of opposition. Right? And to use the terms from politics, the leader of opposition party. So 
uh, he, he was inviting towards a new deen. He was inviting towards Tawheed. So who is going to lead the old party? The old party of Shirk, of Mushrikun. It was Abu Sufyan. And this became a big impediment for him to accept the truth in the beginning. Because by accepting the truth, you have to give up your power. You have to give up your authority. And as we will see in this hadith, there are ten questions that the Roman Emperor, Hiraqal, the Qaisar of Rome, Eastern Roman Empire, not the Western Roman Empire. There's two Roman Empires. Well, originally it was one, of course, then it was divided into the Eastern Roman and the Western Roman when they had the great division in their church. So the Eastern Church, the Patriarch, he was the head of the Eastern Roman Church in Constantinople, Constantinia, uh, which later on, after Sultan Muhammad Fatih conquered it, the name of the city turned to Istanbul. Right Before that it was Byzantium, then Constantinople, then Istanbul. And the Western uh, Roman Empire that continued in Rome, which is in Italy, right? That was the center of the Roman Catholic faith. So you have the Roman Catholic, and then you have the Eastern Orthodox. Then from the Roman Catholic faith, then you have Martin Luther. He came, and there was a Protestant Reformation movement, and then they started the Protestant faith. They're like the they started a new bid'ah from the original Catholic. The whole thing, Allah fadna min ghayr al-ma'adubi alayhim wa Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. So anyway, we have. This um, Abu Sufyan, he became the leader all of the Quraysh and his power became a means of stopping him initially from accepting Islam. And in the battle of Badr, for example, was he leading the Mushrikun? He was not leading the Mushrikun, he would have been. The only reason he wasn't there is because it was his caravan that was coming uh, with the stolen goods. They had expropriated, taken over all of the savings, life savings of all of the Mahajirun. They had forcibly stolen it. And then they had gone with a trade caravan to Syria. As they are going in this hadith, they're going to go to Syria as well. Uh, they went there to sell the stolen property and make a huge profit to fund their war machine. And that was a caravan. Of who? Abu Sufyan. Later, as I said, to become radiallahu ta'ala So, uh, that is why it was a legitimate military target because we have the orientalist version of Sirah Na'udhu Billah they attack Rasulullah and they say that mm, he was a highway robber Na'udhu Billah he was pillaging the highway uh, this you know trade caravan it was a it was not a legitimate military target why are you harassing Abu Sufyan's trade caravan first of all it was stolen property secondly they're going to finance their war machine against Medina that was uh, the stated goal of the entire enterprise. So he was the Rasulullah went out to capture them and take the, retrieve the stolen property, but then he escaped. So Abu Jahl is the one who was the leader in Badr, substituting for Abu Sufyan. But when it comes to uh, uh, Uhud, who was the leader on the side of the Mushrikun, it was Abu Sufyan. And who was the leader, subhanAllah, in the battle of Khandaq, was again Abu Sufyan, radiallahu uh, ta'ala anhu. And then, after the battle of the Khandaq, Rasulullah he said in the battle of the Dish, this is the last time we will be on the defensive. And the next time we will be on the offensive. So, after that, 
he continued to be the leader of the mushrikun up to Sulah Hudaybiyah when the treaty was signed he is the one who did not allow Rasulullah to enter in the sixth year into Makkah seventh year, eighth year they broke the treaty and then the Fatih Makkah occurred so when did he finally accept Islam? he accepted Islam right on the night before the Fatih Makkah when Rasulullah came with 10,000 Sahaba and he ordered them to make their camps of their fires spread out so Abu Sufyan he went up on the mountain with Rasulullah uncle Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib now Abbas had accepted Islam but he was uh, a representative of Rasulullah in Makkah undercover so he was a believer Muslim who had taken Shahada but he was undercover staying in Makkah so Abu Sufyan went with Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib on the mountain they looked out to spy what's going on because the attack is going to be the next day so he, he told Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib that oh Abbas your nephew's kingdom has become so vast because as far as I can see I see the campfires all this army spread out from here till there as far as you can see so Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib started telling him that oh Abu Sufyan this is not the kingdom of my nephew when are you going to realize that this is the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so Abu Sufyan started thinking about it then he said okay let us uh, Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib told him come I'll take you why don't we go and meet my nephew Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa now he's a nephew but he's around the same age because as I mentioned perhaps before that Abdul Muttalib the father he had multiple marriages the day that Abdullah got married to Amin alayhi salam, the parents of Rasulullah that was the same day that Abdul Muttalib also got married for another wife and the time when Abdullah and Amina they, they were pregnant with Rasulullah then Abdul Muttalib's wife also had a baby at the same time was Hamza so he was the uncle of Rasulullah and was born at the same time that's why they were foster brothers they both drank the milk of Thuwayba who was the slave girl of Abu Lahab before Halima Sa'diyah came later on Hamza and Prophet yeah yeah, so they grew up together. They were born around the same time. Uh, their parents got married at the same time. Mm, right? On the same day, in fact. So, the double nikah. Uh, so, just like sometimes you say money, we, you know, you have... It's a good idea. I'm not saying it's something miserly to do. It's a, it's a good thing, you know, if you, you have... Sometimes people have double their son and their daughter in multiple marriages at the same time. So like that, the father and son both got married at the same day. So they were both Radai brothers. Now, that is why somebody asked Abbas anhu the question which you would normally not ask an uncle. They asked him, Anta akbaru am Rasulullah. Are you akbar, are you bigger, older, greater? Or Rasulullah So he was older, slightly older. So he, he found it very difficult to say, Ana akbaru min Rasulullah. So he, he said, uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam akbaru minni Rasulullah sallallahu is akbar minni is greater than me wa ana asannu minhu I happen to have more years than him more sinin sinin are years he is my elder I may happen to be older <laughs> subhanallah so he said come let us go I'll take you to my nephew so he took Abu Sufyan and when he was walking there's a lot of different scenes he saw in the army and um, then Umar radiallahu anhu caught him Umar radiallahu said 
Ya Rasulullah, he brought him into the camp. He said, Ya Rasulullah, give me permission. <laughs> that, subhanAllah, this is in, how should I say, dispatch him to where he belongs. So Rasulullah told him, calm down, Ya Umar, relax, let me talk to him. He came with, who did he come with? He couldn't have entered on his own. But he came with Abbas So Abbas is giving him the what? Safety, guarantee. So then he, uh, he brought him like khususi uh, like specific, you know, da'wah. Give him da'wah, O oh my, O oh Rasulullah So Nabi gave him da'wah. He said, O oh Abu Sufyan, you are so intelligent. How long is it going to take for you to see the truth? And he said, Ya Abu Sufyan, jiituka bi khayri dunya wa karamatil akhirah. I have come to you with that deen which will give you khair in this dunya and also grant you honor in the day of judgment, in the hereafter. So finally he accepted Islam. Then Rasulullah wanted to honor him. So he said, he only had a small house. He didn't have a very big house. He had an average house. Maybe it wasn't the smallest house, but it was definitely not so big that significant part of the population, percentage of the population could not fit in his house. But uh, Rasulullah wanted to honor him so he said, go and make the announcement tomorrow that whoever enters the Kaaba Baytullah will be safe. No one will harm them. And whoever lays down their arms and stays in the house of Abu Sufyan, they will be safe. No one will harm him. So that was giving him so much honor that his house was declared a sanctuary. You know, no war zone. Just like, you know, hospitals are supposed to be. But when... There's no fear of Allah, no fear of... And there's no morals, ethics. People are bombing hospitals, na'udhu billah. And uh, may Allah protect. So anyway, so his house was granted that. Abu Sufyan, radiallahu anh. He accepted Islam. Then after that was the Battle of Hunayn. In the Battle of Hunayn, he was one of the Mu'allafatun Qulub. Among those whom Rasulullah gave a big spoil of war, which became an issue. Again, uh, there's much to say about his life. But since we talked about how long it took him to accept Islam, and he finally did, we also want to mention that when he did accept Islam, he was a true believer. And he did great sacrifices. Uh, and one sacrifice of his we'll mention and move on, is that in the battle of Hunayn, what happened was, they, there was one part of the battle where the entire army of, of Rasulullah and the Sahaba were going through a narrow uh, pass in the mountains and it was a tight place and there was an ambush it was a surprise attack from the Banu Thaqif of Ta'if, the Thaqafiyun who were known as the expert archers of Arabia so when the Sahaba were going through there they were for the first time in their history greater in number than their opponents and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this in the Quran لَقَدْ نَصَرَكُمُ اللَّهُ فِي مَوَاتِنَا كَثِيرًا Allah has helped you on many different occasions. وَيَوْمَ حُنَيْنٍ And on the day of Hunayn. إِذْ أَعْجَبَتْكُمْ كَثْرَتُكُمْ When for the first time, you were pleased with and you were happy and you felt comfortable with your number. Because there were 10,000 from Medina who came and 2,000 from Mecca who joined. So there were 12,000. And in the past, there used to be what? 313 versus 1,000. Or 700 in Uhud versus thousands. So now there are 12,000. So they said, how can we ever lose today? So their attention moved from the nusra and help of Allah towards the physical means. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected that. That subhanallah, the, 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 the fact that their trust 
and tawakkul instead of being on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala momentarily uh, a human weakness it had shifted towards their numbers Allah ta'ala refers to this in the Quran Surah At-Tawbah إِذْ أَعْجَبَتْكُمْ كَثْرَتُكُمْ when you were pleased with your numbers with your majority كَثْرَتُكُمْ the fact that you were more than your enemy then فَلَمْ it did not help you it did not help you in the least in fact you turned on your heels and you ran وَضَاقَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْأَرْضِ مِنَا رَحُبَتْ The earth became tiding for you ثُمَّ وَلَّيْتُمْ مُدِبِرِينَ Then you turned your backs and you started fleeing. So when they came to that um, narrow pass, there was a surprise volley of, of arrows that shot down upon them from the right and the left from all sides. And many sahaba lost their lives and others got injured and many of them turned and subhanAllah started turning their backs. Rasulullah and a few of his sahaba, they did not flee initially. Many did flee. Then subhanAllah Rasulullah called them back. And along with him was Abbas who was Jahwari of Saud. He was very loud and he was making an announcement on behalf of Rasulullah The Prophet was saying, I am the true prophet who is not an imposter, not a liar. And I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. Where are you running? Come back. So at that moment, Abu Sufyan an arrow had hit his head and he had an injury in his head which resulted in his whole eyeball coming out. Do you may recall I mentioned this story before, anyone? Huh? You do? Yeah, I did mention one time. Okay, so his eyeball came out. His eyeball was in his hand. And it came out such that it could have been you know, lost, but it literally he had somehow or the other, it came out in a way where he was able to hold it and was trying to whatever the story is, but he ended up having the eyeball, whatever le- remaining portion of it in his hand, which is it's a very um, a hideous injury and it's, ima- and it's hard to imagine that the ma- you're literally holding your eyeball in your hand, you're not supposed to be holding it in your hand, it's supposed to be in the socket, right? But he had it in his hand now. So he came to Rasulullah and he said, Ya Rasulullah, this is what happened. So Rasulullah said, Wa Abu Sufyan, uh, if you wish, I will, with the, I will make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I will place it back in your socket and you will end up having 20-20 vision. Perfect. Everything will be, you know, connected miraculously by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From the cornea all the way to the retina, everything. Connected to the optic nerve, you'll be having perfect front end, back end, everything will be perfect, inshaAllah. Or, you have another option, is that if you make sabr, inshaAllah, uh, then you will receive the reward for this sabr in, in Jannah. So as soon as Rasulullah gave this option, without a second's hesitation, he threw his eye into the field. What do I need this funny eye? I will receive the reward in Jannah. Now that is an amazing sacrifice. It also shows his yaqeen he had in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Prophet this is when he was a new Muslim, a few days old. He just recently accepted Islam. But then after that, Rasulullah passed away in the 11th year of Hijrah. This was the 8th year, 9, 10, 11th in the beginning of Rabi'ul Awal. Then you have two and a half years of Abu Bakr al-Khilafah. Then you have Umar al-Khilafah. In Umar al-Khilafah, there was Fudu al-Iraq and there was Fudu al-Sham and Misr as well. In Fudu al-Sham, that one part of his, the campaigns during his Khilafah, you had several commanders who spread the deen in, against the Eastern Roman Empire. Among those commanders, there were two big... Uh, the, mm, the greatest role was played by two brothers. And they were his sons. Yazid bin Abi Sufyan and Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. This Yazid is not the Yazid who comes later. 
who is famous or infamous. That is Yazid bin Muawiyah. So we're not talking about Muawiyah radiallahu anhu's son Yazid. We're talking about Muawiyah radiallahu anhu's brother Yazid. So Yazid bin Abi Sufyan and Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan, along with Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah and Shurahbil ibn Hasana. Khalid bin Walid radiallahu was there, but he was demoted. And that's a whole story of how he was promoted during the Khilafah of Abu Bakr and then demoted during the Khilafah of Umar and the wisdom behind that decision. Anyway, so these four were the main commanders. So his, under the, the commander, his son, Yazid bin Abi Sufyan, in the Battle of Yarmouk, Supreme Commander of Fatuh Sham was Amir al-Ummah, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. But Yazid bin Abi Sufyan was a commander and he was now very, very old. He is now in his 80s, 80s. And he was, because he was born, when was he born? 10 years before Amul Fil, 10 years before the year of the elephant. Because in the old biographies, which are known as Tarajim, when they give the biographies, they would uh, date the uh, births and deaths and events based on which one? Amul Fil, the year of the elephant. This happened so many years before the year of the elephant. This happened so many years after the year of the elephant. What happened on the year of the elephant? Rasulullah was born. That was when the elephant, which elephant? Abraha. Abraha came with the army of the elephants. So this was such a traumatic uh, incident that really uh, etched itself on the memory of the entire Arabian population that they could never forget it. That's how they used to date their calendar. Until Umar radiallahu's time, that is when they made the mashwara and they changed the calendar to Hijrah. So it's written in the Tarajim, in the biographies, Wulida Ashara Sanawat Amil He was born 10 years before the year of the elephant, meaning he was 10 years older than Rasulullah. So when the Prophet passed away at the age of 63, he would have been already been 73. And then now we are in the Khilafat of Umar, in the Battle of Yarmouk. Imagine how old he is. He's hitting Abu Ayyub on Sayyidullah's age when he was in Qustantuniya. He was buried in Istanbul. Anyway, so now what happens is. He is still fighting and he loses his second eye. He was surviving with one eye and he lost his second eye. That also became shaheed. And eventually he passed away in the Khilafat of Uthman ibn Affan, عنه, who is his relative from the Banu Umayyah and who led his Salatul Janazah in Masjid Nabui and he was buried in Madinat Manawara. So this Abu Sufyan, um, subhanAllah, he says, Sufyan ibn Harr akhbarahu, he says, he told Abdullah bin Abbas, the son of Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, he says to him, Anna Hiraqal arsala ilayhi fi raqbim min Quraysh. Then Hiraqal, Hiraqal, who's Hiraqal? Hiraqal is the, the uh, Eastern Roman Emperor, right, Heracles. Right? So he was um, the Roman Emperor at this time. The word Kisra and the word Qaisar and Maquqas, these are and Najashi, these are titles for the kings. So if you say Kisra, that is the title of the Persian emperor from the Sasaniyun, the Sassanid empire. And then you have the term uh, Qaisar, this, uh, which is Arabic for Caesar. So the Caesar of Rome, it's not just Julius Caesar, or Augustus Caesar. In Arabic, all of them were known as Caesar, Qaisar. Even though that was from the United Roman Empire, this is now Eastern Roman Empire. So they were all known as Qaisar. So this Qaisar, at the time of Rasulullah his name was Hiraql. Arsala ilayhi fi min Quraysh, meaning he sent a messenger to him when 
Abu Sufyan with his companions, وَكَانُوا تُجَّارًا بِالشَّامِ they were tajar, they were tajers, they were merchants, happened to be in Sham. Sham we sometimes translated as Syria, but Sham, as it says here, was a uh, region which included several current political entities, including Syria, Palestine, the free Palestine, occupied Palestine, known as Israel, uh, Lebanon, Jordan. Right? This whole region was known as Bilad al-Sham. It was one region. These entities of Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, these were created with uh, the Sykes and you know after what is it after World War One, when the Ottoman Khalifa he made a huge mistake by signing up with the Germans, yeah, the Axis powers against the Allied powers, right? Everywhere World War One would happen. The Allied powers were Britain, Great Britain, UK, and France. So they fought against the Germans in World War One. So in the World War One. The Ottoman Khalifa, which was pretty much dying at that point, he signed up with the Germans. So then the Allied powers attacked the Axis powers. And this area in the Middle East was all part of the Ottoman Empire. And after the Ottoman Empire was, was destroyed and the final Khalifa was, Khilafat was abolished, then they cut up the, uh, the Muslim lands. Uh, they literally sat with the ruler and they took the map and then they carved out the pieces exactly as was foretold by Rasulullah The nations will come together to invite one another to eat you up. Just like qasa is a big plate. You know, uh, uh, people nowadays want to eat in small plates, portion control for dieting, right? But in the past they would have like this huge plate. Some places they still do. But it's not for one person. It's not out of greed. It's because they would be sharing. So five people eat from one plate. One huge plate. So that big plate is called a qasatiha. So ila Just like people were eating, they ask one another, "Come, let's eat from the big plate." So the Sahaba said, "Are we? Are we going to be so few in number that they, so Nabi Sallallahu will say, "No, that's you will be a, a lot in number." But you will be like the froth on the ocean that will be." Pushed here and there. And it's because of one. What is one? dunya Love of material wealth, a fear of death will overcome you. And that is why you will become so weak despite having so great numbers. Because in the past there were so few numbers. The Sahaba say the day when the 40th person accepted Islam, we were so excited, we were jumping up and down in joy that can you believe it? We are now 40. What can stop us in the whole world? Nothing can stop us. We have now become 40 Sahaba. Like this Abu Ubaidah bin al-Jarrah, he says, Kuntu sudsal ummah. I remember when I myself in my person was one-sixth of the ummah. Right. So now he says, so they were 40. That was a big number. Now here's, subhanAllah, become weak. So when they divided it up, they divided like, so you have, for example, Syria. This was the French protectorate. French had, and then Palestine, was what? British. Jordan was under Britain. So these areas were called the protectors, colonies. So they divided up. Now if you look at the map, um, like for example, look at the map between Jordan and Syria. So it's geographically, there's no boundary. There's no mountain range, there's no river. So language is the same, and culture is the same. Religion, of course, is the same. Same tribes, same people. So these are completely artificial lines. When you look in Europe, you know, they, whatever the boundaries are between countries, there's some natural boundary. 
like the Rio Grande River between the United States and Mexico. Right. So um, some people come through the immigration, some people swim through the river, they say, right? So th but that's a natural boundary. When it comes to uh, Europe, that's the same thing. There are mountains, there are rivers, it's natural boundaries. Plus their language is the different, is different, right? They're very, originally they're very nationalistic. The Swiss have their Swiss language, French, German. Um, all these countries have their own language. Um, Italy has Italian language, Spain has Spanish language, so they're all different languages, different cultures, different foods, right? We know, like even here when we have all the different food, we'll say, okay, this pasta is what? Italian cuisine, and German cuisine is different, French is different, but they're unifying themselves. Monetary Union, the EU, and Military Union, the NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, so all of them are trying to become unified. But the Muslims are divided. So that is Bilal al-Sham. They were merchants. They were doing business in Sham. Now, why did why did Abu Sufyan call call him up? And how was in why was he in Sham, Abu Sufyan? So there are a couple of things happened at the same time. First of all, we have to understand in the time of Rasulullah there were two superpowers, and they were the. Persian Empire, their capital was Madayan. The fire worshippers, the Majusiyun. And then there was the Eastern Roman Empire, which was based in Constantinople, as we've spoken about. These were the two superpowers. When we were growing up and we used to read about this in the books, in the history, then we would grow up in the Cold War. We used to talk about sometimes become warm, it's getting warmer nowadays. Allah May Allah make it protect us from becoming a hot war, right? The Cold War. USSR and USA. So we grew up in the 80s and we used to read about these things and we used to draw the parallels. Like there were two superpowers currently at that time. And in the time of Rasulullah they were the two superpowers. Now, the Persians, they defeated the, the Romans. They vanquished them, they destroyed them in all the region in between. Iraq was taken over by the Persians, Syria, Sham, all of this was taken over by the Persians. They had come all the way to the gates of Constantinople. Basically Constantinople, the capital was all that was left. They even entered modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Um, all of the priests were killed. Jerusalem was ransacked. It was ransacked many times by many armies, by the Romans, by the Babylonians centuries earlier. So now Bukhtar Nasr came, different kings came. Now it was the, turns of the turn of the Persians to destroy it. Um, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about these current events in the Quran. There's a whole surah, Rome, surah to Rome. So it's, it's interesting because the Quran is talking about current political events. Alif la mim ghulibatir Rome. Alif la mim. Rome, the Roman Empire has been vanquished, has been destroyed. Maghlub, they have been. Destroyed by whom? By the Persians. Fi adan al-ardi in the nearby land. So this was such a prophecy which was completely against all of the conventional wisdom of the time, meaning all the political pundits and the commentators on the on the different uh, news channels. They did not predict this. They said that it's the end of the Roman Empire. They're never going to come back. But Allah Ta'ala said, uh, In a few years, they're going to come back and take over everything. 
Lillahi al-amru min qablu wa min ba'du. To Allah belongs the authority before and afterwards. Wayawmaydhin on that day when they will be victorious, who will be victorious? The Romans. Yafrahul mu'minun bi nasrillah. The believers, they are going to be very, very happy to see the help of Allah. Why are they going to be happy? Two reasons. One is because the Quraysh were rooting for the Persians because they were mushriks. And the Muslims felt an affinity with the Christians because they claim to follow Tawheed, but there's a little bit convoluted Tawheed. One plus one plus one equals one. I'm a bit confused about that one. But besides that, they claim to follow Tawheed. So they would be on their side. Whenever the, mushikun, whenever the fire worshippers would win, the mushikun would get happy because that, they've supported that team. And whenever the uh, Romans would win, the Muslims would get happy. So Allah Ta'ala says, When the victory, news of the victory of the Romans will come, the believers will be happy. So, but they weren't only going to be happy because of that. The day the news came of the victory was which day? The day of the victory of the Battle of Badr. The day of the criterion when Allah granted victory to the believers 313 over the mushrikeen 1000 in the battle of Badr. That is the same day when they finished the victory, the news of the victory of the Romans came. This the promise of Allah will never do against His promise. When this uh, prophecy came, everyone was said, this is impossible. What are you talking about, O Muhammad? So Abu Bakr before the Haruma came, the prohibition, or the other Tawji explanation, it was a one-sided bet. He made a bet with the Mushrik Keen that of hundred camels. That I bet a hundred camels if the Romans do not defeat the Persians in nine years, within nine years maximum. Because Allah Ta'ala said, Fi bid'i sinin. The word bid'un means from three to nine. So he's so this word bidran comes a few times in the Quran. Abu Bakr Siddiq. Yeah, this was before his prohibition. Is one toji, one explanation. Or he made a one sided bet. You know what a one sided bet versus a two sided bet? One sided bet is that uh, the mushrik says that if your promise is true if what you are saying is true, I I think it's so prosperous, it's so unbelievable, so utterly ridiculous, I guarantee I will give you a hundred camels if what you say is true. He made that. That's a one-sided bet. So, and the two-sided bet would be if it's, you give me a hundred camels if what the Quran says is not true and I will give you a hundred camels if the Quran is false. Both sides. So one-sided bet is permissible. Two-sided bet is haram. Or it, he made this bet before it was haram. But we don't have to worry what's going to happen. Watch what happens is he's not going to do anything with it, as we see. So he made the bet for one year, then Rasulullah told him, no, extend it for nine years, because the word bidran means three to nine. And when uh, this victory happened, he got hundred camels, but Rasulullah told him, give it all in sadaqah. So he did give it all in sadaqah. Yeah, he did not use it, he did not consume it, he did not benefit from it, he gave it all in sadaqah. So when this victory happened, this hiraqal, he was his, his station place where he would stay in Sham. When he would visit Sham, he loved Sham. He loved the climate of Sham. He enjoyed that colony of Sham. He would always stay in the city called Hems. The name of the city was Hems. But when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted him victory over the Persians, then he made another, a vow, a mannat, 
that from him I will walk barefoot to Jerusalem to the church of Isa alayhi salam Baytul Maqdis or the other church because the Baytul Maqdis that's where the Yehud were worshipping they had the Christians had their own church and I will pray there so he was in Hims located then the time came for him to fulfill his vow so he walked barefoot from Hims to Jerusalem and he was going there to make his ibadah at the same time Abu Sufyan with his caravan was there in Syria for trade why were they in Syria for trade is because uh, Allah Ta'ala speaks about this in the Quran that the Arabs the Quraysh they used to have trade caravans in the winter and Saif in the summer and they would trade from two areas one is in the north the caravans of the north and the caravans to the south the north was to Jerusalem and the south was to Yemen so they were and now they were not able to trade for some time because of the battles and the wars but finally in the sixth year of Hijrah they had signed a peace treaty what is the name of the treaty? Hudaybiyah after the peace treaty was signed now they could relax and go and do and, and, and have business and safety so this was right after the treaty was signed they went there for trade because now for the first time after many years they're not afraid for their lives do you remember this is the same Abu Sufyan who was coming with the caravan in the first year of Hijrah and that turned into the battle of Badr but now he's back at business again this is a yearly thing even Nabi Wasallam, when he was a young boy where did he go with Abu Talib same Syria where the Buhaira, Rahib, the monk saw him, saw the trees giving him shade and the, and the clouds giving him shade and recognized him, told Abu Talib, take him back, he will be attacked by the Yehudis here. Likewise, when he got married, where did he go? With Khadija radiallahu anha, hired him, radiallahu ta'ala anha, with her slave, Masira, to spy on him to see if he would be a good person to get married to. He went to Syria. So they would always be going to Syria. So they are again here in Syria. Abu, Abu uh, Sufyan is back at work. So that's why he was there. And then you have the letter, Dihya Kalbi. Why is Dihya Kalbi there? Dihya Kalbi, you spoke about him in Wahi when he started off. Who is Dihya Kalbi? Very, very handsome Sahabi, do you remember? He is the one that Jibreel salam, when he would come in the shape of a human being, uh, when the angel Jibreel comes in the form of a human being he would typically come in the form of he was sent by Rasulullah one of the Qasidin, one of the messengers who took the letter from Rasulullah when he Rasulullah wrote letters to the kings to invite them towards Islam so Dihya Kalbi took the letter he went to Busra uh, <laughs> We see it, sometimes people confuse it with Basra. Basra and Kufa, these are cities in Iraq. Kufa and Basra, till today, Basra, it comes in the news, right, Basra. This Basra is a city founded in Iraq in the time of Umar bin Khattab. It didn't even existed at this time. So this is another city, Busra, which is in Sham. So he, there was a governor of Hiraqal. Rasulullah followed the protocol. He sent the letter first to the governor. And he told the governor, the Hikalbi, take it to the governor of Busra. The governor of Busra received the letter, but it was written to the Qaisar. But, uh, so he was supposed to forward it on, but then he said, look, uh, 
Where was he supposed to send? Either to Hims or the actual capital. What's the capital? Constantinople. But the Qaisar was on a pilgrimage. And Busra is not far from Jerusalem. So he told the Hekalbi that you can just take the letter straight to Jerusalem. You don't have to go all the way there. So the Hekalbi came with the letter of Rasulullah to Jerusalem. Hiraqal received the letter. Then he wanted to investigate. So he did a very beautiful investigation. Who is this letter from? Who wrote this letter? What's going on in Arabia? Who is this man Muhammad who claims to be a prophet? So there's no news like eyewitness news. So let us try to find out what we can from people who have met Muhammad who know him. So he asked his people in the government, go around and check. Are there any Arab tribes or anyone from Makkah currently in our land, in our city? So they went out to search. And in the markets they found the news that there is a tribe from Quraysh and there's Abu Sufyan with some merchants who have come for business. So they were caught. They were not necessarily arrested, but they were told that the king is asking you to come to the palace. He wants to ask you some questions. So you have to show up. So then they were brought. Uh, they really didn't have much choice. They didn't have to be brought in chains. They were just brought because the king is calling you. What are you going to do? You have to go. So when they came to the palace, then Hiraqal, he asked Abu Sufyan a series of questions. In fact, 10 questions, which I was attempting to just read over today, but I believe that will have to be for another time. So he asked him 10 questions, and each one of those questions is very, very deep, and it's phenomenal and so enjoyable. What type of questions he asked? And how Abu Sufyan responds to those 10 questions, in which he is doing an investigation regarding Rasulullah. And then what is the final conclusion he reaches, and then how he accepts Islam, and then how he becomes murtad and leaves Islam. Why he accepted Islam, why he left Islam, and what happened, uh, inshallah, as they say, more after the break. <laughs> right? Just keep the suspense. I'm not even sure what is a good stopping point here. Because but this is basically, I guess, part one is setting the scene of the story. This is what we did today, perhaps. We set the scene. They were merchants in Sham. This happened to be in that period of time when there was a peace treaty between Rasulullah and the Quraysh. I've spoken about this graph before, but I'm not sure if you remember. Which graph? The graph Ibn Shahabuddin Zuhri he made of and his observation regarding those who accepted Islam, the numbers. Right? So he says in Qatar Mukarramah there were so few. Remember when they reached 40? They thought they were invincible. And only a couple hundred accepted Islam in Qatar Mukarramah. Um, all the way in the Battle of Badr, 313. How many years of da'wah in Makkah? 13 years. Then in Medina, 313 in Badr, 700 in Uhud. In Hudaybiyah, it's only 1400, all the way to the sixth years. 1400. Jabir ibn Abdullah says, 1400. On the day of Hudaybiyah, we were 1400 Sahaba. So the number is there. Jabir ibn Abdullah narrates. Today, you 1400 are the best 1400 people anywhere on the whole surface of the earth, and the entire surface of the earth, you 1400, who took the bay'at al Ridwan. So, subhanAllah, 1400. Then what happens is, subhanAllah, we jump from 6th to what? 8th year of Hijrah in the Fatih Makkah 
It's it's, it's uh, hmm? ten thousand. Subhanallah. So fourteen hundred becomes ten thousand from sixth year to eighth year. So huge jump, right? All these years, thirteen years in Makkah, six years in Medina, and what do you have to show for it? Safra not like that manner, but nineteen years, right? You have fourteen hundred Sahaba. But then in two years the fourteen hundred becomes ten thousand. And then what happens even more is subhanallah after eighth year of hijrah till tenth year is when Hajjat al Wada'a. Ninth year Rasulullah sent Abu Bakr anhu as the leader of the Hajj. And then the tenth year there was the hybrid Hajj. Mushrikeen, Muahidun doing it together. But the announcement was made this is last year. Next year onwards Mushrikun do not have visa. Right? This ayah came in the Quran Surah Tawbah. Ya yuladina amanu innam al-mushrikun al-najasun fala yaqarabu al-masjid al-harama ba'da amihim hadha. This is the last year the mushrikun have visa to enter the haram until the vision 2030. No. Okay, anyway, so uh, that's uh, so we, they do not have visa after this year. Rasulullah Allah Ta'ala said in the Quran. So the next year Rasulullah came and he did the hajj. How many people were there? Oh my God, 124,000, are you serious? So you went up from uh, 10,000 to 124,000. So he did this graph. Who did this graph? Ibn Shabdin Zuhri, Ali. And then he did his analysis. And he said that, Subhanallah, this is the barakah of peace. Because while there was a state of war, the Mushrikun and the different tribes, they were not having an opportunity to interact with the Muslims. But after Sulah Hudaybiyah, now there was a peace. It was a non-aggression pact for 10 years. No one is going to attack anyone. So they started interacting, mingling, getting to know each other. And when they started living with one another, what happened? Then the Mushrik tribes saw the beauty of Islam. What happened? What did you see? You saw, You saw the people entering into the fold of Islam in huge groups. So that is the barakah of peace. So in this era of peace, he is there. Then what happens? It says here, Maddafi Abu Sufyan. This is when the Quraysh and Abu Sufyan, they had taken a, uh, a peace with, a treaty with Rasulullah wahum They came to him and he was in Jerusalem. Il um, is Allah in the Hebrew language. So you have Jibra'il, Israfil, Israel, Il, Ya, city of Allah in Hebrew, Jerusalem. Fada'ahum fi majlisihi. So he called them to enter into his court around him. Rum. And around him were the dignitaries. I want to just talk about this page. And around him were the dignitaries of the Roman Empire. Because if the king is going for a pilgrimage, whether you really feel religious or not, you believe in his deen or not, what do you got to do? You got to go with the flow because he's the boss. The king, he believes in this pilgrimage stuff. So all these other guys, they just had to hang on you know, to their titles. They, part, they, had to, you know, they had to be part of the whole pilgrimage. You understand? So these other leaders were there. But this Heracles was actually quite religious. He's, why is he doing this pilgrimage? To thank Allah for the victory. He called him inside. He called it his translator. He called his translator. فَقَالَ أَيُّكُمْ أَقْرَبُ نَسَبًا بِهَذِ الرَّجُلِ Which one of you is closest in lineage to this man? الَّذِي يَزَعْمُ The one who claims أَنَّهُ نَبِيُّونَ That he's a Nabi. He asked about the Nasab. Remember I covered the Nasab. Sufyan bin Harb bin Umayyah bin 
Abd shams bin Abd Manaf, exactly. Abd shams was a brother of Hashim. So he's closest. Who is closest? So he also wanted to know the lineage because if he's someone outsider, then he may attack the lineage and say, oh, he's from a trash family. This is a person from the same family who is close to the one who claims he's a Nabi. Faqala Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan says, meaning who is he saying to? He's telling Abdullah bin Abbas. Abu Sufyan said to him, Faqultu, I said. Now he's referring to what he said years ago. Faqultu, I said, An aqrabuhum nasaban. I am closest to him. Aqrab, I'm qareeb. Nasaban, I'm closest to him in lineage. I'm the man that I can answer your questions. And we will do all of these questions and questions. Inshallah. So at least we finished this one page. So it's a good point to remember. Abu Sufyan said, I am the closest and I will answer the questions. So he asked him the questions. Um, and may Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq to listen, to learn about those questions and the answers. But he did not lie. You know, that's very, uh, one last thing. I mean, there's, there's lessons at every point of this story. One thing is that, look, this, he's, who is he? He's a leader of the Quraysh. And Muhammad Sallallahu is the leader of opposition. And you are speaking to the biggest emperor. There were two. It was Qaisar and Kisra. But who's, the, who's, who, who's in power right now? Who, who overpowered the Persians? The Romans did. Remember, this is a celebratory, not celebratory, thankful, pilgrimage of thankfulness. So he is literally the undisputed king of the world. And you have an opportunity that he is asking you about your enemy. So wouldn't this be the best opportunity to make up all forms of lies? Huh? Yeah, you could say bad things. And what would you say? What would you get? You would uh, um, be able to secure the military, financial, and otherwise all form of aid. And you could say he is such an evil person. You need to support me. With your help, we can overcome him, and etc., etc. But all of the questions that are going to come, Abu Sufyan himself says, he himself says, this is not even something that we have to explain, or scholars explain. He himself said that the rest of the Qureshi people who were with me, they were all mushriks too. And if I lied, they would have been happy too, that okay, you did good for the cause. But, they would go back and tell people in the Quraysh, that when the Roman emperor put Sufyan, Abu Sufyan on the witness stand, he ended up saying all these lies, just to get the support of the king. And lying, even in the era of Jahiliyyah, was considered a sign of weakness. A brave individual will not lie. It's cowards, they lie. When they get in trouble, they make up excuses to get out of trouble. So lying is a sign of hypocrisy, a sign of weakness. So therefore, I did not want to lie. Because later on, it would go against me, and people would attack me. Oh, you're a leader of a Quraysh, and you went and lied there. So even a mushrik in that era did not want to lie. And he asked him all these questions. There's one point, one question he asked him that, uh, did, he, did this man ever uh, deceive anyone? So he says, Abu Sufyan says that every question I had to answer, I never had any opportunity to put my own feeling into it. But over here, I had an opportunity. I said that uh, up till now, he has not betrayed us. However, we have signed a treaty with him and we're expecting him perhaps anytime he may deceive us. But who deceived who? The Quraysh are the one who broke the treaty later on. He said, that was the only opportunity I had to interject my own feeling. Otherwise, I had to answer truthfully. Not because anyone here would contradict me. Because the rest of the people are what? On my side as well. But only because then I would become 
known in the community as a liar and I did not want to be known as a as a liar that is how great the virtue of truthfulness was in the time of even the jahiliyyah amongst the mushrikun may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be true truthful in our statements and protect us from this curse of lying lying has become so ingrained in our Muslim lands and non-Muslim lands everywhere even non-Muslims we cannot say anything about them if they do not even believe in Allah but Muslims we believe in Allah right subhanallah sometimes the people in Muslim countries in the east when they I'm comparing with people here I even heard the statement that really made me so shocked they were saying that yeah America ke bachche to itne bhole unhe bhole hote hain unko jhoot bolna bhi nahi aata I even heard this like the kids in America they're so innocent they don't even know how to lie so lying is something that is taught it's like you cannot survive without lying because the child is he's growing up he sees for the simplest thing at the marketplace his mother is buying vegetables she's going to lie when he goes to buy clothes they're going to lie his father is lying everyone is lying about everything you go get a ride from here to there you're going to lie about whatever you know every person is lying about the you know without any like huge gain also just because it's it's you know you go to the tailor you see the mom is lying with the tailor you go to the buy something with the dad you see the dad is lying everyone is lying about everything so much deception in the community and then they say all oh, these kids in america they're so innocent they don't even know how to lie can you lie with a straight face you don't even know how to lie man how how much immature are you so this is this is has become part of the culture just lying and deception whereas the mushrikeen there's something we can learn even from the mushrikeen subhanallah hikmatu Anything of wisdom, it's a lost article of the believer. Wherever you find it, you can take it. What can we take from the mushrikun? They didn't even want to lie. May Allah Ta'ala make us among those who speak the truth. When it's in our benefit, when it may be difficult for us, we always speak the truth. Allah Al-Kathibin. The la'na and curse of Allah is on those who lie. Wa'akhir da'wana. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Abu Sufyan's wife, did she accept Islam? Her name was Hind. Right. So on the day of the Fatih Makkah, she went out to see what's going on, to take her tour. So she heard Bilal anhu crying by the Kaaba, making dua, Oh Allah, grant hidayah to him, grant hidayah to him. Who, she is the one who used to torture him, but he was making dua for hidayah. She then she accepted Islam. All right. So, and, uh, I was, uh, yeah, so he, and his daughter was one of the Ummul Muhatul Mu'mineen as well. Zakallah, it's my life. I'm just one. Inshallah, I'll have a song to take.